Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Let's fame that all hunt after in their lives, live registered upon our brazen tombs, and then grace us in the disgrace of death. When, spite of cormorant-devouring time, the endeavour of this present breath may buy that honour which shall bait his side's keen edge and make us heirs of all eternity. Therefore, brave conquerors, for so you are that war against your own affections and the huge army of the world's desires, our elite edict shall strongly stand in force. Navarre shall be the wonder of the world. Our court shall be a little academe, still and contemplative in living art. You three, Baron, Dumaine and Longueville, have sworn for three years' term to live with me, my fellow scholars, and to keep those statutes that are recorded in this schedule here. Your oaths are passed, and now subscribe your names, that his own hand may strike his honour down that violates the smallest branch herein. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing. You have joined us for a Shakespeare comedy, Love's Labor's Lost. And we just heard from the very top of the show, Act 1, Scene 1. That was the king enlisting three of his men into a pact, a sort of education pact. You three have sworn for three years' term to live with me, my fellow scholars, and to keep those statutes that are recorded in this schedule here. I have invited two guests to join me, and they volunteered especially for this, and I'm going to ask them why. So Matt Bianco, who is with the Searcy Institute. The Searcy Institute is the platform producer of this show. I've talked about it many, many times, C-I-R-C-E institute.org is where you can find out more about them. Matt, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Love to be here. I'm glad you're here. Sean, a regular contributor to Close Reads, our 
our cousin podcast, our sister podcast, our uncle podcast. What is the relationship <laughs> between us and the plays, the thing, Sean? Has that been determined? Maybe kissing cousins. Kissing cousins. I like it. And that takes us right into the play. <laughs> so um, Love's Labor's Lost is, is a comedy, an early comedy from Shakespeare. It's not like a top 10 most produced play. It's probably not even a top 20 most produced Shakespeare <laughs> play. But I found this play to be wonderful and I am asking you guys, did you sign up for this play because you enjoyed it? Like you had previous experience with the play or is there something about the play that you find intriguing? Sean, why did you sign up? Why, why, why loves labors lost? Yeah, I, I was really eager to sign up for this one because I, I think it's an underrated play. It's rightfully overshadowed by some of the, the later comedies, but I think it, it's doing some interesting things that Shakespeare toyed around with here and yeah. maybe perfected later. Uh, uh -huh. But he's also, especially for a comedy, raising some interesting questions and dealing with some fairly serious themes that are unique uh, in his in his body of work. And I yeah. think that it's just, I think it is without flaw. It's not as mm. profound as some of his others or as... Uh, dramatically developed maybe but i don't think it really has flaws the comedy is uh tight and mm -hmm. witty and it's a play full of wordplay but it's also a play inspecting its own wordplay uh, i really think this is sort of shakespeare at a turning point uh and that it's a really really fascinating Play for that reason. I want to hear, Sean, I'm going to come back to you in just a second. And I want to hear what you think are the things that Shakespeare kind of starts developing this play that maybe come to greater fruition in later plays. So I'm going to put a pin in that for a second. Matt, you also really wanted to talk about Love's Labor's Lost. Why? Well, first of all, I don't know how you got me onto a podcast without Nora. I know we're breaking form. This is, this is very difficult for me to have to talk to Sean instead of Nora because <laughs> Nora and I have come so far together. So far. Um, but Sean, you're, you're fine. You're tolerable. <laughs> Honestly, though, uh, to answer your question, I picked this play because I'd never read it. Mm. So I had no clue what I was getting into until now. Yeah. And, uh, I will say even just, you know, out of the preparation that I've done for today that I have basically the same perspective that, uh, that you know, that you just gave us, Sean, I think that it's incredible. I think I, I, it was so much fun reading yeah. this yeah. and, and that it, it wasn't as predictable because it didn't fit the comedy mold as perfectly, um, at least in appearance, and just the 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 masculinity of the men and the femininity of the women mm. and the cleverness of both and the lack of cleverness and some and <laughs> I mean there's just so much going on. Yeah, yeah, it was. I'm glad, and I agree. I agree. You know, after this, that it's it's underrated. Yeah, for sure. Like yeah. it should definitely get more, 
more uh, billing than than what it does. Yeah, and so I'm, story, I'm really glad. Sorry, I'm really glad that that Matt is here because I think that uh, this is one of the plays, one of Shakespeare's plays that's most indebted to Plato. Interesting. And uh, so, I, say more. Why, where is it indebted to Plato? I think from the from the beginning, right? The the king's opening speech reads like a kind of paraphrase of um diotima's uh in the symposium is talking about the the ladder of love uh, and there's this sort of uh ascent of the soul that has to pass through these various stages of development and uh, i think that's all over hmm. uh the play I think I think uh, Brown or however you say his name gets uh, some of this too, but at like the kind of the early the early stages of the ladder that perhaps the king is skip trying to skip over mm-hmm. um, in Diotima's speech. That's good. I didn't connect it explicitly. I didn't connect it explicitly to Diotima's speech, but I think you're right. So the ladder. Say say more. What what rungs might the king be inclined to skip over? I, I actually think it might be useful for us to just pause and talk about the symposium for a second about the particular aspect of the symposium that you guys are talking about. Um, and I'm going to put it on you, Matt, you're our local Plato scholar, Sean, um, so please much. pitch in also, <laughs> but I would love to know. Cause a lot of people I think are going to show up to this show and they're like, Hey, I thought we were talking about love's labor's loss. We're talking yeah. about Plato now. Jokes what is the you. symposium? suckers um well if the i mean just a quick summary the 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 idea of of the latter in diatomous speech is that you know man has this has this um you know ultimate end of perceiving the form of participating in or perceiving the form of beauty and and that through love and that uh and that, so like, I don't know if you took an example, right? Like a baby, a baby's first encounter with beauty is his, is his mother's eyes, right? Mm-hmm. As, he's, as he's being, you know, fed at the, at his mother's breast. And then as he encounters more and more exemplars of beauty, maybe the, the little girl down the road or the little girl at the nursery or whatever. Right. And you know, other women and other, other young ladies, as he gets older and older, those all become part of his understanding of beauty. And then, um, and then as he gets older, still like that would, that would begin to, at some point he, he starts bringing into his understanding of beauty, not just women, but paintings and artifacts mm-hmm. and music mm-hmm. and, you know, all of these things, nature and all the landscapes, all this stuff starts informing his understanding of beauty and what beauty is. And, um, and that's kind of a, a, a bottom up approach to it, but the the um, you know that's that's all trying to get at this perception of beauty uh, to to the point where you start setting aside the the visible representations and start recognizing beauty itself. And this is, happens through through love. But but the but but you'll notice I think if 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 we look if we were to look closely at Diotima's speech. It begins with the physical beauty of another human being, and it ends with the form of beauty. And in between there is an education, right? An education in other women and or other other bodies, but also in statues and paintings and plays and poetry and music and all that stuff, right? And it seems like the king is trying to skip to 
the educational part of it mm. and, and not ever have to love and in fact, reject the love of another human being. Um, and the, and, and Brown is pushing back against that and saying, look, I'm going to keep my oath because I made it. But he says, uh, <laughs> he says he's going to keep his oath because he made it. Um, but he's, he's pushing back right at the very beginning, you know, right there in scene one, that, that this is a foolish vow, a foolish oath. Yeah. But, but later, I think in act four, um, when everything kind of comes to fruition, at least for the men, when the men all start realizing <laughs> what they've done, um, Brown says, how can we, how can we, how can we love learning if we don't, if we haven't looked into the eyes of a woman, you know, and, and, and approach that learning through, through the love of for, love for a woman. <laughs> Matt, is that on your end? It is. The Does that happen often? It's a mail every day, truck? every day, every day. <laughs> Every day and five thirty, <laughs> right when you are podcasting, I assume that's when that's you kind of right, say yeah. your podcast times. I want to read <laughs> from. We don't know how to say his name. Berwin is how I've been saying it. I think this is from Act Three, but love first learned in a lady's eyes lives not alone and mured in the brain, but with the motion of all elements, courses as swift as thought in every power and gives every power a double power above their functions and their offices. It adds a precious seeing to the eye. A lover's eyes will gaze on, will gaze an eagle blind. And then a little bit later in the monologue, then fools you were these women to forswear or keeping what is sworn, you will prove fools for wisdom's sake, a word that all men love, or for love's sake, a word that loves all men, or for men's sake, the author of these women, or women's sake, by whom we men are men. Let us once lose our oaths to find ourselves, or else we lose ourselves to keep our oaths. It is religion to be thus forsworn for charity itself fulfills the law. And who can sever love from charity? And the response from King Ferdinand is St. Cupid then and soldiers to the field. And that means <laughs> let's go find the women who are like encamped yeah, in the field outside of the castle walls. Right. Let's go get them. That's the resolution. Yeah. Before we go on with this, I do want to just give a real quick overview of the plot. So you've heard us talking about the kind of, conceit that begins the whole play, which is King Ferdinand has gathered three of his friends together. They're dukes, high-ranking officials, and they want to found, the king wants to found an academy for scholarship. So he asked the three lords to sign their names to the oaths, swearing their commitment to the academy for three years, and they are not going to look on women, fall in love with women. They're going to even abstain from food. There's going to be a lot of fasting. But of course, what happens in the play is the young men fall in love against their will. So the princess of France arrives to King Ferdinand's court for a state visit. And she arrives with these other ladies. And as they have been traveling, they've spied these three friends of Ferdinand's, the ones who recently swore to three years of abstinence. And the young men are, fall in love, each with one of the ladies. Um, but when they meet Ferdinand, when the ladies meet Ferdinand, 
he does not want them to come into the castle, so he obligates them to camp outside of the court. There's another little sidebar. Don Armando, a Spanish soldier, has fallen for a servant girl, Jaconetta. And we also have this, I love this character, Costard, an illiterate, who kind of mixes with um, like the ladies and also the guys. And he commits this terrible error of mixing up a letter that he's supposed to deliver from Armando, the Spanish soldier, to the servant girl. But he accidentally delivers it to one of the one of the queens, one of the princesses' women, and that kind of opens the door for the men and the women to kind of unite to get together and for the romance to really begin. So that's what it's a great structure for the play. We know that everyone's going to fall in love, and we're just kind of waiting for it to happen. And I love the way the women hold the men off. They kind of know the men are just putty in their hands and they hold them off and hold them off. They disguise themselves. Shakespeare um, has fun as he always does with disguises and that mixes up some of the lovers. They, you know, later figure it out, but it's great. So Sean, I want to come back to you. The things that um, maybe Shakespeare plants in this play that come to greater fruition in later plays, what were the things that you were thinking about? Uh, I think he, the way he treats language mm-hmm. uh, is shifting in this play. Uh, and it, it reads in places like a self-conscious reflection on, on the way he uses language. Uh, the, even the, the kind of penance or test that Rosaline imposes on Barone in the end uh, is this challenge to curb uh, a kind of empty, cynical wit mm. uh, in order to replace it with something of greater substance. And there's a lot of humor that happens in the play at the expense of verbosity and verbal witticisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of empty wit uh, or or wit in the mouth of characters that we're meant to sort of mockingly laugh at. Yeah. Uh, and it really seems like you know, like the, the point in your own life where you, uh, maybe this is truer for men than for women, uh, where you, you have a lot of clothes that your mother has purchased for you. Uh, <laughs> right? uh, as, a, as a teenager, maybe. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. But then you maybe have some clothes that you had a little bit of, say in in purchasing and you kind of consciously decide oh i'm going to do more of that right my uh-huh. i'm going to now be the person who gets the clothes that i wear and i'm going to put away these other clothes that the you know, mom was looking out for me and that was a you know a fine and and, and natural part of my life but i'm moving on now uh and this really seems like a kind of as a kind of sincerity here and that it's a an appreciation of wit, which Shakespeare is in uh, early possession of, but mm-hmm. there's a kind of conscious looking forward. There's there's a corner being turned here, and the the importance of the love of a good woman, mm. <laughs> right? the, mm. the loving of an individual, uh, and its transformational power. It is a uh, a theme that 
is sort of dissected here in a way it's not dissected anywhere else. But then the payoff of the conclusions that that Love's Labor's Lost comes to is felt through a lot of the later plays. Sean, I want to go back to the wordplay because this is an early comedy. Uh, scholars think that it falls after Two Gentlemen of Verona and right before his Shakespeare's first huge smash success, Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. They think it's right between the two of them. Yeah. I was thinking back on Two Gentlemen of Verona. The opening act is full of so many quibbles, so many word plays. So he will take a word and he will encase it in different sentences and the meaning of the word changes depending on what sentence it's kind of enmeshed in. And we see the same thing here. It almost in, in two gentlemen of Verona, a couple of times, it's really funny and it's really fun. And you kind of admire Shakespeare's dexterity with the words, but sometimes it's kind of like, okay, now you're just showing off. You're just showing off. We're not advancing the plot. We're not advancing the characters in any way. You're just showing what you can do. And it's like, it's fireworks. It's incredible. Uh-huh. But I want to play one little audio from Costard, this character that I kind of fell in love with. He's kind of like a, I don't know, a, a page or something like this. He's probably illiterate. He's, you know, teased from being ignorant, but he has some of the very best wordplay in the whole play. So let's listen to him wordplay on the word manner and later complicate it with a pseudo-rhyme, the word matter. The matter is to me, sir, as concerning Jack Winnetter. The manner of it is I was taken with the manner. In what manner? All in manner and form following, sir, all those three. I was seen with her in the manor house, sitting with her upon the form and taken following her into the park, which put together is in manner and form following. Now it is the manner of a man to speak to a woman. For the form in some form. <laughs> that was Costard talking to Berwin, making wordplay on the word manner. Sometimes it's M A N N E R, sometimes it's M A N O R. It's a very Shakespearean thing to do, and it shows up especially in these in these early uh, comedies from Shakespeare. Um, Sean fruit that you that Shakespeare is kind of developing that germinates and really flowers later. Yeah. And and I think it's great that it's changing in this play that is about study. And uh, one of the characters is a school teacher. Uh, And that wordplay comes out of really classic rhetorical exercises. Mm -hmm. Uh, there, There are plenty of rhetorical manuals that are in use in school in Shakespeare's time that uh, require or walk students through this ad nauseum modulating and uh, and revolving and repeating in different ways uh, the same sentence or the same word in different senses. And uh, I think you're right in the some of his earlier plays, it's just there for effect. Uh, it's a cool tool, yeah, and so it's it's he uses it. Uh, and here, He's a little more selective about whose mouth he puts that kind of wordplay into. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's now it's being used for a particular effect. Uh, he's more intentional and selective and reserved uh, about how he uses that kind of rhetorical flourish. Uh, 
And I, yeah, I think it just, uh, it's just another sign of Shakespeare's kind of learning, learning the control of his considerable uh, talent. I did a podcast with Chris Perrin from Classical Academic Press recently, and he and I spent a lot of time talking about what we think Shakespeare's education was probably like. And one of the books that we brought up was Shakespeare's Uses of the Arts of Language by Sister Miriam Joseph. Oh, yeah. It's the first kind of like longitudinal study of rhetorical education theory. And it's a super nerdy, super wonky (laughs) book. And it's great. And one of the chapters is about, to support your point, Sean, how much time they think was spent in the classroom learning how to develop and make words by bolting prefixes onto existing words or bolting suffixes onto existing words as just two of the kind of tools by which they could create new words. And so, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that Shakespeare introduced all of these new words into the English lexicon because he had apparently great training in it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go back for a second um, to the beginning of the play, the pact that these guys make, you know, to kind of form their academy, three years, very little food, like hard training, no women. As younger men, would this have been interesting to you? I mean, does this sound appealing? Does it stir something in you now? Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) It would not have appealed to me at all. Really? It wouldn't have appealed to you at all? I mean, I loved Shakespeare and in high school, but I would not have... I would not have exercised that kind of self-control. I would not. I mean, I might've, I might've done it like the way these guys did. <laughs> right. I might've said, I'm going to do this and then uh-huh. not do it. Uh-huh. But, like I would have that kind of rashness. Yeah, absolutely. But I would never have seriously thought to engage in a pact like this and actually expected to keep it. Um, but are these two different things? I mean, it sounds like you're saying you neither had the attraction and you also knew that you lacked the willpower. So you neither were motivated by the ideal. And even if you were motivated by the ideal, you you wouldn't have actually fallen through. Is that what you're saying? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But today, I mean, you know, my wife would never agree to it. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a problem. But, you know, if, if, uh, you know, if the proverbial bus came along, maybe I would do it for three years to, uh, <laughs> but you know, your wife doesn't listen to these, right? No, of course oh, not. that's good. Phew. <laughs> uh, Sean. Yeah. No, I uh, I, not only would this appeal to me, this did appeal to me Yeah. when I was, when I was 17 or 18, there was a, uh, I lived about 20 minutes from a Benedictine monastery. In, mm-hmm. in Mount Angel, Oregon, and uh, they have a they have a great big library, and uh, there's some theological study that goes on there. And, uh, there was a part of me that thought, "What a life! That, yeah, uh, that would be so great." Uh, but another part of me that uh, I mean, that's, maybe that's one of the reasons this play resonated with me so much uh, because it seemed so believable. Uh, mm-hmm. I had such a such a longing for that that life that I could envision, 
but at the same time, I also liked girls. <laughs> right. Uh, that's that's always the problem, yeah, Sean. Yeah. That's, that's always right. the problem. It's always the problem. Uh, and uh, I could not see both of those things that were very much true about me uh, coexisting. <laughs> yeah. And, right. And I think that's one of the great things about about the play. And even though it's not a play about monasticism uh, per se, uh, it's not not about that. Uh, there's there's a uh, very much of uh, investigation of youthful enthusiasm and uh, the the kind of oaths and vows and commitments that we're yeah. uh, prone to making as young men without really knowing ourselves well enough to know <laughs> where that's going to lead or how capable Absolutely. we are of keeping those keeping those commitments. Yeah, I in when I was a sophomore in college. I fell in with this, I, I went to this small Christian college and I was, I was very, very earnest about wanting to be good. I wanted to be good really badly. And I had friends <laughs> that were kind of, um, we were all friends with the Dean of Students and we, we loved this guy. You know, he was probably 10, 12 years older than us. He was a great athlete in college and he was just a great guy. And we kind of made a pact that was not too dissimilar to this <laughs> with very different, like very different goals. We weren't trying to create an academy. We were just trying to be good. And so we swore off certain activities, which I'm not going to elaborate on, but I'll let you use your imagination. And we also made a pledge that if any of us violated these forsworn activities, that we would all get up, regardless of whether or not I was the person who had the infraction, we would all get up at five o'clock in the morning and go run a mile together as sort of like <laughs> a group penance. And you can imagine how that went. I was, I, I knew that I lacked the willpower, but I wanted to have the willpower and everyone else was in the same boat. And I think we ended up running three times before we were all like, this is going to work. We can't do this. <laughs> We can't do this because we hate the guy who actually says that he's doing the thing that everybody else is probably doing. <laughs> so it didn't last very long. But all that to say, act one, scene one of Love's Labor's Lost is very appealing to me. It, like, it appeals to a youthful kind of um, idealism that still I've got a little bit. So I'm glad to hear, Sean, that you're my brother in that. Matt? You're lost to me, man. No, I mean, I lost to me. Honestly, like it never would have occurred to me, but if somebody did say it, oh, yeah, I might've been interested. Yeah. But I would not have had the, I would know that I would not have had the willpower. Yeah. 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 I mean, look, but if at 17 years old, I already had a girlfriend who was pregnant. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You had that ship had sailed. <laughs> right. Like, it was far over the horizon. But if you had asked me that when I was like, 13 or 14. Okay. I mean, when I was 12, I wanted to be a priest and, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Monastic and. Yeah. So. Does this play have a protagonist? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Right. I have a, I want, I don't want, I just want to make sure because Sean brought up mm. penances and I want to make sure mm. we talk about the penances oh, because yeah. that's important to me because I have a question about it. But let me get about protagonist. Does it have a does it have a protagonist? Yeah. Who's going first this time? You are. Dang it. Um, <laughs> Don't blow it. 
Yes. <laughs> and a protagonist and a protagonix. Ooh, oh, a protagonatrix. Protagonatrix. It has two protagonists, I think. And who are they? I think Baron is the first one, or Brony, Brownie, 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 Brownie. Byron. Uh, Brownie is the first one, and the princess is the second. Mm. Sean, do you, to, do you want me to elaborate? <laughs> Clearly, you guys agree with me, right? <laughs> I have a follow-up question, but I want to hear from Sean first. Uh, I think there it does shift. The weight uh, sort of, of authority seems to shift in the last act to the princess. Um, so I, I can get behind that. I would say for the most part or for the majority of the play, Barone is the seems to be the clear protagonist. Is it is it confusing at all to you guys that the king is not the protagonist? He opens the play. He's the one who's plotting the pact. He has the property. He has the princess visiting him. Why? And I agree with you. Barone among the men is the protagonist. And I agree. Like our protagonista is the princess but why does it shift away from the king that's a, it's such mm-hmm. a confusing decision do you have any thoughts on this i mean i could imagine i could imagine the plot working a different way if you wanted to keep the king as the as the center but uh in some ways it seems like the the pact the person who the person who proposes and enforces the pact can't or is less likely as a candidate for protagonist uh, because he doesn't know himself as well. I think that's one of the things that sets Barone apart. Mm. Uh, there, there are problems with his self, but he seems to have more self-knowledge than the other men. And so we see him, the, the other men pretty quickly, all deferring to him, even the yeah. king. Yeah. And maybe is, he has been more that- learning too. I don't know. Yeah, I I think what you said is is actually why it has to shift in the final act too, because he can only bring them to the level of self self knowledge that he himself is at. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. that's good. And then and he does that mm-hmm. right, but then he's not far enough along. It's like it's I mean it's like um, Beatrice shifting to you know, the Virgin Mary right. in the divine comedy, right? She can only take him so far. Yeah. And then the Virgin, you know, Mary has to come along and finish the job. It's kind of like that where he can only take them so far. And then the princess has to come in and finish the job. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That is great. That's a great insight. Um, just as a side note, I, I watched, I like to watch as I read and I watched a 1970s version of this play, and the guy who played Barone, as soon as he stepped on screen, I was like, who is that? He is great. <laughs> you know, when you see a really great athlete, it, even if you don't understand the sport that well, you know that athlete is different. They're yep. doing something different. And the Barone in the version that I was watching, done by the BBC in the 70s, was Jeremy Brett. Do you guys know the actor Jeremy Brett? He was a, a famous no. and fantastic. Um, oh my gosh, what is wrong with me? Logan, help me out here. Here we go. He's a famous and fantastic Sherlock Holmes, like a great all time oh. Sherlock Holmes. Huh. But I only knew Jeremy Brett from 
when he was probably in his 60s when he was playing Sherlock Holmes. And then I look back and I was like, oh yeah, no oh, wonder yeah. he was so esteemed because he's just terrific. He's terrific in the Sims <laughs> version. Um, Matt, you wanted to talk about penances in the play. Yes. Okay. I have two questions. Uh, one is the first question I had as soon as I finished. Do they keep it? <laughs> right. Mm. right. And then... And then second, which goes, this is, we can do this one first because it comes from Sean's comment, your comment earlier, but you said that, that Rosaline had, had, um, keyed her penance, the penance that she gives to Barone, she keys it to his, his self. Yeah. And what she sees as his weakness and, and which reminded me in act two, scene one, the ladies are there. They're having this whole conversation. And in line 40, well, in 39, the princess asks Maria if she knows Longueville. And Maria responds, starting in line 40, that she does. And then she says in line 49 that his is a sharp wit matched with too blunt a will. Mm-hmm. Then... In line 56, Catherine starts saying, what, telling the princess what she knows about Dumaine. And she says in line 59, for he hath wit to make an ill shape good. And then in line 64, Rosaline starts explaining to the princess what she knows about Barone. Yeah. And she says in line 74 that that he speaks with words that aged ears play truant at his tales and younger hearings are quite ravished. Hmm. And then, so he, he apparently has the ability to, you know, make people do what they ought not do. Uh, Dumaine is, you know, can make ugly things beautiful or whatever. Right. And then uh, Longaville, you know, he has a sharp wit, but he has no will. And so then I was wondering if those three behaviors or character traits correspond to those three penances. Yeah. And then, Uh you know, so then they probably would correspond to everybody else, but we only get those three described there. Like we only get a description of the King. I don't think from the lady's perspective. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right though. Uh, And it's in telling too that Dumaine and Longueville, all they have to do is wait. Uh, like they just need to, uh, Domain, even one of the things she says is he's a well-accomplished youth and Domain and Longueville, uh, both seem to be the least willful, uh, the most sort of pulled along, uh, in this scheme. And all they have to do is grow up, <laughs> get a year older and, and we'll be ready for you. Uh, but, is it one of them that they tell they say get a beard? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and uh, but the king and Barone have different problems. But the king hasn't come to terms with uh, real fidelity uh, and real austerity or heart. And, yeah, uh, and so he actually has to take a vow of you know some sort of monastic celibacy and austerity for a year uh and then yeah barone has to uh, spend a year disciplining his speech and all right she says that his eye makes sport of whatever he sees or his wit 
His eye begets occasion for his wit, for every object that the one doth catch, the other turns to a mirth-moving jest. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he makes jest of everything. He makes sport of everything he sees. And so she says, go spend a year with the sick and the dying uh, and see where your jokes get you then. Uh, so I, I think yeah. that's I think that's absolutely right. They all seem to be uh, keyed to their characters, and the the uh, Domain and Longaville are just smaller souls. There's <laughs> less yeah. less uh, maturing, the less complex maturing that has to take place there. It's it's insane. I mean, this is just Shakespearean brilliance, honestly, and and. It's it's very humanizing, especially for women. Um, as much trouble as Shakespeare gets into with women for some of his other plays, because <laughs> excuse me. Um, okay, so in this play, you have these men, and right out right out the gate, we have this group of men who very clearly do not know themselves. Mm-hmm. But right here in Act Two, you have three ladies describe these men. Perfectly, yeah. Mm. Like, they, like everything they say about them is proved true. The rest of the play, and to the point that it has to be penanced at the end. You know, the um, the the women know themselves, and and therefore others are able to know others in a way that the men just cannot do. But Barone makes the point. I think again, credit to the ladies. That I'm I'm not sure a man can <laughs> without loving a woman. Yeah. Without without the power of sight that a woman brings, the double power of sight that a woman gives to a man when he's in love. Right. To, to go back to the passage you quoted, Tim, at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And and that part of that part of that double power of sight is seeing yourself as as the woman sees you. Hmm. Uh, because that is so right. The, if they could come to see themselves through the eyes of these women who are describing them, uh, half the half the battle would be won here. Right? This is, of course, um, exactly what is put on display in the negative from uh, in um, Julius Caesar. That is it. It's Cassius, right? That says to Brutus, "Well, you need me to be to to know yourself, to see yourself. You need a mirror. You need me." Yeah. But then Cassius does it in a way that corrupts Brutus. Mm. And then his wife is trying to be that for him. And then he's, well, I don't have time to talk to you. I got to go. Yep. I got to go to Caesar's house, you know? Yeah, all the wives of Julius Caesar are trying to do that. <laughs> right, exactly. I, I wonder, Sean, to go back to one of your earlier points that, I mean, about the fruit that later kind of comes to great fruition later in Shakespeare. This is a theme that shows up repeatedly in the comedies that, the women are more mature than the men over and over and over. Yeah. And we recently did all's well that ends well. <laughs> and the main male protagonist is pursued by Helena and Helena is this kind of poor girl. She's a servant girl in a great lady's house and she's falling in love with the great lady's son. And she is, she's light years ahead of the guy. so much so that you ask, wait, what do you actually see in him? Because <laughs> you're not attracted to his wealth. That's about the only thing that he's got going for him right now. So I, this this is a much more comedic comedy right. than is All's Well That Ends Well. And so I think that the comedy kind of 
allows Shakespeare to have to kind of get away with it from a plot level because mm-hmm. it, it seems like these women are just really far in advance of the four guys. But yeah, the play works because it is just such a funny, funny play. Well, and women can often, women can see, uh, and I'm, and Barone gets at some of this, women can see what men could be, mm-hmm. uh, right? This is, mm-hmm. this is sounded like you guys just did the, uh, uh, Pygmalion on close reads, right? Yeah. And Shakespeare is uh, somebody on the close reads Facebook group asked a question like, are there any, are there any inverse or inversions of this kind of myth where the, the women are in uh, the position of creating uh, the object of love. And in, in a way, Shakespeare does that a lot. His women are able to see uh, the man inside the man. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the man that that these men could become, and uh, and then help bring that out. But even uh, in Rosaline, you see sort of the uh, the makings of Rosalind, uh, as you like it, who's also teaching her intended lover how to be uh, the right kind of lover. Yeah, yeah. So Shakespeare inverts the myth. Yeah, I think so. Regularly, yeah. regularly. Did you guys happen to take note of the last, do you guys happen to take note of the last act of our play, the length of the last, excuse me, the last scene of our play? Yeah. Yes. Compare that with all of act three, which <laughs> was but a blip, right? right? Yeah. Five, two, act five, scene two is the longest in Shakespeare's canon. Really? And it's, like it's like almost a fourth, if not more of the entire play is that one scene in which we kind of wrap everything up. The men and the women get together, but sometimes this play is called a problem play. Uh And do you guys know why this is sometimes grouped with the problem plays? Sean, it sounds like you do. Uh, I, my guess would be, or if I, if I were grouping it with the problem plays, part of my rationale would be that it's not a comedic ending to a comedy. Right. Uh, it ends with the death of the King of France, which is a heavy note. And then even though it's a kind of happy thing, uh, one of the minor points uh, that comes out in the last scene is uh, our motto has, mm-hmm. uh, is, deciding to own as we didn't even know it was up in the air, but he's deciding to own this illegitimate pregnancy or he's gotten Jack one pregnant. So illegitimate children, the death of the King, and then the men and women don't get together and it ends yeah. on this kind of cliffhanger. And I think uh, it was Matt who asked the question earlier, uh, do they do these things? Uh, mm. Do the, do the two simpler men have the patience to wait a year? Mm. Uh, do, does, can Barone go a year without running his mouth? Uh, can the king actually live in true austerity? And the women, the women uh, rebuke the men, and maybe this goes back to the the connection to the symposium. They rebuke the men for not not loving them as particular women. Mm. All right. The so the the disguise and the and the mistaken identity is playful as it usually is in Shakespeare, but then it has this more serious implication 
you didn't even, you were in love with the idea of loving a woman. You didn't even, you could even tell that it wasn't me you were talking to anymore. Yeah. And so there's a lot hanging there at the end that makes you wonder if, uh, yeah. if, <laughs> if this is going to come out in a comedic way. Is that the only time that somebody's actually held to be at fault for not knowing who they were talking to when they should have? Because it seems like normally, like there's, I mean, it's just played off for a laugh and then you move on. Right. I mean, I mean, in some cases it's, well, this bad thing happened because you were fooled by the persons, but not, not you were talking to so-and-so and and you didn't even know it. Like that's Mm. like, that doesn't seem to be the, the, like, like that they were responsible to have seen through the disguise doesn't seem to be a thing in other plays yeah. like the way right. it is here. Right. You know? Right. We're doing a Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, Ian and Emily Andrews and Heidi and I, and we are kind of talking Dream about team. there are these, um, these pairings at the beginning of the play that are different pairings by the end of the play because all this magic happens in Acts two, three, and four. And the magic that happens in two, three, and four is really putting right mismatched couples at the beginning of the play, you know? And so the, the, I wouldn't call them disguises, but the confusions of identity, people falling in love with people that they were not with at the beginning of the play. Well, it works. It works. And so kind of confused identities goes creates the solution of the play. But yeah, I can't think of another play, Matt, that does what you described. Yeah, I'm racking my brain too. I can't think of one either. Matt, do, if you had to bet, do our four guys, the king and these three friends, these three dukes, do they fulfill the bargain uh, set before them by the women? Yes. You think so? Yeah, but I don't have any textual evidence. (laughs) (laughs) Your your textual evidence is your optimism, your internal optimism. Is that what it is? Well, it's a comedy, so that there has to be something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I was kind of bummed out. Like, I thought, I thought there might be an epilogue that told me, like, you know, Henry V has the epilogue at the end. (laughs) Five years later. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. I was kind of bummed out that he didn't give us an epilogue. I figured the Q, the Q source has it. <laughs> Q source has got it. Yeah. The, the, er loves labor's lost has got it. <laughs> it's out there just waiting to be found by some academic. Yeah. That's right. And we just got stuck with this folio man uh-huh. edition that didn't have it <laughs> too bad. Sean. I, yeah, I think so. And I think maybe I have some textual, uh, oh, good. evidence, but good. it's not strong, but I think, it's conditional. I think they 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 can all do it if they do it together. Oh. Right? I think similar to the the kind of fraternity, the temporary fraternity that they're forging at the beginning of the play, uh, I think if they can make use of that, uh, they can get each other through this period. Uh, I alone, I don't know. But that would, pro- what your solution would provide some symmetry to the opening act. Yeah, that's We're right. going to bond, this band that's of what brothers I was is going to form yeah. an academy. Yeah. Right. That's perfect. I, I don't know. I don't know if I picked up on this or not, or if it's even in the text, but is their initial coming together, like, like 
do they not really know each other until now? Like, are they kind of coming together as not, not like a close fraternity of, of brothers and friends, but just four guys who, you know, happen to have the same desire who may have, may or may not have known each other to whatever extent. I, yeah, I just assumed, yes. I assumed that they, they sort of made up uh, the King's court already. But and they already I, knew each other and they already had a bond. Yeah. And somebody that, just said, bro, I, I have a great that idea. Also, but yeah, but you're I, right. I, there's I no, that also, there's no real so, proof of that. Yeah. Why did it, if, if, if doing it together is what will make them successful at the end, why didn't doing it together make them successful at the beginning? Because they, they jumped stages as you asserted. Yeah. It was a problem with what they were committing themselves to. Uh, and then, and Barone, but even so in the Diotima saves us. That's Diotima right. saves us. And even in the middle, Barone, when he realizes he's in love, and it's that great scene where they all show up with the poems that they're writing, uh, he even says to himself, Oh, would that all four of us were in this same situation? Man, if only the other three were in love too, like we'd really have something here. Uh, and then when they all acknowledge their, their mutual love, uh, you know, they're all excited and quickened in their, and their passion. And, uh, I think that shows that there's some potential there. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. That makes sense to me. Cause I, what I was wondering was, is, was their, their relationship not forged enough to be strong enough to do it together. Oh yeah. But now having gone through all of this, it is forged enough to be strong enough to go through it together. But, but even if that's not the answer, I think what you said might be right. The, that they had the wrong goals and now they have legitimate or they had the wrong goal at the wrong stage in life or whatever, you know? Yeah. Uh, I want to close with part of your answer to the question. You mean, I think they, I think they make it. So that's, here's my penultimate, the penultimate aspect of the show. I think they make it, but for the same reasons, I think as you do, Matt, I just, I'm hoping for them. I like Sean's argument. I like Sean's argument that if they form a brotherhood, they can they can stay together and make it happen. I wonder, Rio, I wonder what the uh, close readers will say. Or I wonder the crazy yeah. thing listeners on the group, whatever. Yeah, let us know in the comments. Um, yeah, let, let us know in the comments. Um, Mesh, I want to play part of a soliloquy from. Berwin, when he's attempting to kind of rebuff his own love for Rosalind, I want to close the show with that. But Matt, first, could you tell us what's going on on uh, the other Circe Institute platformed podcasts? Yeah. So um, first of all, it's interesting that we're three and O unified on whether they succeed at the end, but we're for three on pronunciations. We've got three yeah, right, pronunciations right. for, for Baroni. Um, <laughs> it's not yours. The, uh, <laughs> uh, so on the Overdue Classics, uh, they just finished up reading through a portion of Ovid's Metamorphosis. And we are about to begin recording this next week. Um, we are going to read Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. Mm, there you go. And then I think Epic of Gilgamesh is coming up after that. So nice. And Sean, can you tell us what's happening on our uncle, aunt, cousin, kissing cousin show, Close Reads? The main show 
is uh what is this gonna when's this airing is this airing soon it's airing soon yeah i think before the q a <laughs> okay yeah so the main show is wrapping up pygmalion it's a q a episode on that coming up pretty quickly uh and then we're moving on to uh, a novel 20th century novel by george bernanos uh diary of a country priest and on the you really uh, like that book don't you i i do he is yeah. even in the same vein uh maybe a little less hard-boiled but he's kind of in the same vein as uh graham green and mariac and i like those catholic 20th century novels yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and the subscriber sure. exclusive series is working through c.s lewis's space trilogy or ransom trilogy mm. we're, we're about to move into perilandra nice yeah so look for close reads wherever you find your podcast and let's close i want to thank you guys for coming on the show and i want to thank our listeners for tuning in to love's labor's lost on the plays the thing your podcast for all things shakespeare let's hear jeremy brent a famous sherlock holmes but here playing Berwin, trying to rebuff his own love for rosalind I am toiling in a pitch, pitch that defiles, defile a foul word. Oh, by the Lord, this love is as mad as Ajax. It kills sheep. It kills me. I, sheep, well proved again on my side. I will not love. If I do, hang me. If faith, I will not. Ah, but her eye. By this light, but for her eye, I would not love her. Yes, for her two eyes, well. I do nothing in the world but lie. I lie in my throat. By heaven. I do love. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.